I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. The concept of paradox, which basically means interwoven contradictions, it is the yin-yang, that the light defines the dark, the dark defines the light. These are always in mutual interaction. And I can get really too philosophical on this side, but it is a change in mindset Mm -hmm. when you move away from the either or, let's weigh the pros and cons, make a decision and move on to, wait a minute, you can make a decision today, but that same issue is going to come up again tomorrow. Because needing to be both innovative and efficient never goes away. Marianne Lewis is the first woman to serve as dean of the University of Cincinnati Carl H. Lindner Business School. Earlier in her career while at UC, she began to feel restless and a bit stale after being a professor for 10 years. She took a faculty Fulbright scholarship moving to London to do research. This led to her becoming the first woman dean of the Cass Business School in London. After she was hired by Cass, Marianne learned that some very important information was withheld from her during the hiring process, causing her to question why she had been hired. After learning this information, she joined in and took on the challenge of the issue at hand and helped to make big changes related to gender. Enjoy this positive high-energy podcast with Marianne Lewis. Today I have with me Dr. Marianne Lewis, who is Dean of the Carl H. Lindner College of Business at the University of Cincinnati. Marianne was Dean of London's internationally ranked Cass Business School for four years. Prior to that, Marianne was Associate Dean here at UC for 10 years, and then you came back to UC. Uh, So you're back home with us. You were at UC, went to the Cass Business School for four years, and then came back here, right? Exactly. It's good to be back. Yeah, good. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being a guest. Um, let's start out with uh, some questions about your background. And you were at uh, UC, you took the position with Cass Business School, pretty prestigious school in London. And uh, why did you decide to come back? You know, I really do believe in serendipity or planned luck. And as much as I was loving London and appreciating the opportunities there, I think it was a host of things. It was realizing as we worked so hard in our careers, I wanted to be doing it at a place I love dearly. I have family nearby. Mm-hmm. I'm a grandmother now. I saw and that I thought, on Twitter. Oh, I think this is a great <laughs> chance to actually do what I love in a place that I love for people I love. And it all kind of came together. Yeah. So it is great to be here. Yeah. I saw a photograph on Twitter and I thought, why did she come back? And I look, I saw the grandbaby, you holding a grandbaby. I thought, I think I just figured it out. <laughs> certainly a part of it. <laughs> I'm a grandmother too, so I it's certainly wonderful. get it. But you said something interesting. Serendipity is planned luck. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I think hard work obviously comes in a great deal to where we get in our lives, but I also think luck matters. Mm-hmm. And I find that they merge around what I call, and others call serendipity, because it's about putting ourselves in the right time and place, because we keep mm-hmm. looking for really what matters most to us. It yeah. sharpens our peripheral vision, and right. opportunities rise, I think, by that right. kind of focus. Right. Yeah. Well, Cass Business School, uh, I mean, it's a pretty prestigious school, and, um, you know, UC has a great business college. Uh, You were dean here, which is, uh, there aren't many women deans of business schools in the country. What's the percentage, would you say? 
Well, I think it, it's certainly gone up in the in the last five years. But I remember when I was struggling with the decision about whether or not to go to CAS, I had another opportunity to be a dean elsewhere in the United States and actually making a bit more money and sitting on the beach. And it, everything about it seemed easier. Mm-hmm. And a colleague of mine sent me an article that said of the top 100 business schools in the world, only eight are led by d- women. Mm. You must go to London. And it was and I knew it. I knew it before that art, before she sent it. me this. You I knew I needed it. that sort of a challenge. Yeah. And it was such an opportunity. But again, there's quite a, a good network now of women deans across the business school mm-hmm. world globally mm-hmm. that work together, connect, support each other. So I don't know what the exact percentage is, mm-hmm. but really among the top business schools, it's probably still around 10%, maybe mm. a little bit higher. Great. Well, uh, do you have some of a formal organization of women deans of business schools? Do you mm-hmm. connect in that way? It, it's a combination. There are there are formal opportunities, like through our accrediting body, AACSB, but there's also just the informal network that we know matters. Yeah. The people you that you pick can up pick the up the phone. phone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, when you were a professor here, associate professor at UC, um, you know, younger, earlier in your career, uh, you told them, I want to be dean here. And you knew you wanted to lead even back then. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. And did it surprise them that you wanted to head head the whole thing? Oh, it definitely did. <laughs> so the, the story you're referring to is when, when I applied to be associate dean way back when, I was still actually an associate, which for those of you, know, I was an assistant, I should say. I had not even been tenured. Um, which is ludicrous in the academic world. You, mm-hmm. you typically you see leadership roles going to people who are full professors, very much later in their career, and so I'm sitting around this big table of senior professors, interviewing for the associate dean job. And yes, I was asked why would you want this role, and I said I'd like to be dean someday. And I think I can imagine I must have sounded rather arrogant at the time <laughs> when I think back of it, who and it just came out. She is? <laughs> But um, I, gr- I, re- I grew up in academia. I'm an academic brat. My father um, is a remarkable mentor, but he led the Harvard MBA for right. quite some time and then Harvard Business School Press and then was a university president. And as much as I, I love my research and my teaching, I saw the potential to make a bigger impact in an administrative leadership role. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I saw it from a very young age. And I thought, I think the earlier I dip my toes in that water, the faster I'll learn. Yeah. And go great. from there. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. And I knew I knew your father was an academic. He was at Harvard. He spent some time at Stanford, I believe. Yeah. And then he was with BYU in Hawaii. Talk about him. Talk about your parents, siblings, where you grew up, and how mm-hmm. did your dad influence you? So, as I said, an academic brat, we moved, I don't know, seven or eight times as Mm -hmm. as a child between Boston and Palo Alto. So that's Harvard and Stanford and some Mm -hmm. time in INSEAD, which is outside of Paris. Um, I I actually remember telling him, and I'm the oldest of five, uh, I don't this probably was junior high or high school, that I was not going to be an academic. I was going to be a business leader. And... The next thing I knew it, I was at Indiana getting my MBA and highly aware that I was as focused on how they were teaching as what they were teaching. Mm-hmm. And 
my peers in the MBA program at Kelly were all really excited about their consulting jobs and opportunities, investment banking, and a host of things. And I realized, oh, I don't think I'm, I think I'm in a different world here. I love the theory. I ended up doing my internship as an MBA as a research assistant. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the rest from there was history. I, 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 can't, I think the more you know yourself, the more you're comfortable being more like your parents. <laughs> and and when, once I came to Any that day now. Yeah, right? And then I just realized, okay, I, I need to go with that. I, yeah. I, I love higher ed, too, because there's just such power in learning. Mm. Yeah, I have to believe your dad was was really influential. He Did was. you have siblings? I do. I'm the oldest of five. Okay. Um, w- one other in mm-hmm. academic academia. Um, but growing up this way, we were always pushing mm-hmm. ourselves to sure. learn. Academic achievements mattered. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I see it as very empowering. I mean, you make such a difference in the lives of students, mm-hmm. let alone in the ecosystem of your communities with what we can do in higher ed. Mm -hmm. So it became a natural. Sure. And did your mother probably didn't work outside the home with all the kids, right? Correct. And has always been wonderfully supportive. Good, I'm sure. Um, This pandemic has changed. We're in in a global pandemic, um, and it's changed uh, the way students are learning. There is not really, you know, uh, well-attended in-person classes right now. We're doing this via online um, virtual classrooms. And how has this affected uh, your teaching? How has this affected how students learn? And um, how has this, do you think, permanently changed how education is delivered? Oh, I think, I mean, th- there are a number of pieces to that, Susan, because Pre-pandemic, it was very clear that higher ed was being, education maybe more broadly, was being disrupted by technology. And so we were very aware of that. I mean, lots of discussions and really good experiments around flipped classrooms, Mm -hmm. right? What do you provide to watch, to engage with outside of the classroom? So classrooms, when you actually have a face-to-face, become much more interactive spaces. I think that that has re- been accelerated. I mean, really put on steroids with the pandemic because we're all experiencing what's possible with the technology and w- how much we prize the face-to-face. And so I, I, th- I think we'll have more respect, appreciation for the chances we have to be one-to-one. Mm-hmm. But we've also realized there's a lot we could be doing uh, on the technology side. Um, hmm. and, and I guess I would note to that, and, and there were some good debates about this, but I, I took the opportunity to jump back myself back into the classroom. I love being with students. It's, you know, I think you can have questions about what is it a good use of your time to be in the classroom. But to me, it, it's so energizing. And I, I wanted to know what my faculty were experiencing in the classroom so that as we continue to innovate, I see both the opportunities and the very real challenges. Mm-hmm. How do you build community? Yeah. When you're not face to face, how do you foster that sense of belonging and engagement? Those are new challenges mm-hmm. for us to work in. Mm-hmm. Let me flip to the other side. I mean, one of the reasons I also came back to UC is I, I, I've loved the ethos of co-op and cooperative mm-hmm. education and the the partnerships we have with employers mm-hmm. because it's it's not transactional. At UC. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a partnership. And mm-hmm. so 
very early in the pandemic, we got together our boards, our employers, and the very quick learning for us was you, you, you need to be talking to your students about this, not as a hassle, not as it's just the pandemic, but moving forward, we are going to need them to be digital professionals. We need those current newcomers to the, to the mm-hmm. work world, but also our longer standing employees to know that you need to be able to work, collaborate, lead, learn digitally. Mm-hmm. as well as in person. Mm-hmm. And so that helped us shift even the dialogues in the classrooms to say, every time you're giving a presentation, it, rather than thinking, I can't believe I have to do this in a pandemic, let's, let's realize what's happening in the work world. Mm-hmm. Why are we putting people on planes every time we need them to get together? Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to sell your ideas and collaborate digitally. Mm-hmm. And let's make this a safe space to learn how to do that and fail. Right. And learn through right. that. Mm-hmm. But that's a different kind of approach, I think, for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very positive approach. In, in other words, not looking at it as an opportunity or rather not looking at it as a problem, but seeing it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And how is this changing and how do we need to learn from it? But I just came from actually UC Real Estate Roundtable had a presentation this morning. And uh, we had some professionals on there who were talking about the future of office and uh, office uh, properties, and that's my uh-huh. world, uh, commercial real estate finance. And everyone's looking at very closely, what is the future of office? Exactly. You know, are people going to at some point come back into the office and be together after we go through the vaccine and everybody or most people are vaccinated? And what are we missing when we don't have it? And they talked about it, which is, we don't have uh, as much community. Mm-hmm. We're losing our culture. It's hard to have a real culture when everybody's at home on a computer screen, you know, looking. That's I mean, right. you can, yeah, I'm more productive. I can get some personal things done. I'm, you know, this is great, not having to commute. But you lose, you lose something. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have gone back to offices when we could have all worked online before anyway. That's right. Now we're forced to do it because of the pandemic, but there is this missing, and and mm-hmm. I have to believe, as you say, it's missing in the classroom too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, with this. Well, and we, you know, we've talked for for decade plus now so much about you know work life balance and boundaries, and boy, those boundaries are gone, mm-hmm. right? When you're having meetings yes. and you see <laughs> a, a child walk in, a pet, what you know, right. you realize, all right, yeah. Flexibility mm-hmm. is going to take on it. It already has taken on new meeting. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all starting to have the conversations. What's it going to look like next? When we go right. back. When we and go back. Some of my large institutions uh, are really not going to be back for a while, maybe April, right. you know, June, exactly. July of 2021. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk to them and you're on an online situation, you can see they're at home. They're in their home office or at their kitchen table or something. And it's like... That's their world. They get up and they do that every day, you know, and it it has changed and uh, and, and it was fast. You oh, know, it, was it was really, really coming fast. on a year ago that this but, you all know, happened. We, we spend a lot of time working with students on professional development, whether you're an undergrad, an MBA, whatever the case might be. And so this has pushed us to have different kinds of conversations. How do you prep for anything from mm-hmm. an online interview 
to make the most of a meeting. I mean, turn on your screen. What's behind you? Mm-hmm. How are you staying focused? How Right? Because it's very tempting to be multitasking. Yes. Right? It's it tempting. Is. Yeah. And the, is that really professional? Mm-hmm. And how does that definition also change? Right. So I think meaning, meanings mm-hmm. are taking on new light mm-hmm. in the through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we're all watching. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate a lot of the research going on at, at Lindner and also just more globally around the future of work, mm-hmm. the future of space, the future mm-hmm. of collaborations. I mean, that word future is mm-hmm. actually now. Right. And we're all talking about that. Yeah, one of the professionals that, w- that was serving on the panel today uh, at the real estate event said that there are 5.1 million jobs coming in. I can't remember the amount of time, but if you think about those new jobs that are right. coming in, we will need office. We will get back to office. So I am optimistic about the future of office. Maybe not this year, maybe next year. We'll we'll see you know improvement, but I I'm optimistic about office. I I absolutely am optimistic, and I do think there will be new capability gaps, mm. which is where higher ed also comes in. Mm-hmm. How, how do we work with our employer partners to identify those, and how do we start adapting curriculum and innovating in the classroom mm-hmm. to prepare people, mm. both that are current students, but also that might be alumni or working professionals that say. Oh, I think my trajectory is changing. What do I need? Mm-hmm. And and where do I go to get it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, I wanted to mention, too, that you, you got your undergrad degree at Tusculum College. I did. Got your MBA from IU, Indiana University at Kelly, where my daughter went to IU. Did She's you? an IU grad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you went on to get a PhD in management from University of Kentucky. So I did want to mention your education mm-hmm. background. Uh, and then I wanted to talk about, because I think this is an important topic for uh, women that are in their careers to recognize this, and when you were teaching as an associate professor at UC, you were coming up on nine, ten years, and you were starting to lose energy, feel restless, and you you thought it was time for a change. Talk about how you were feeling and how mm-hmm. how you knew it and, and uh, what you did. Well, I think it was is a, a few things. I mean, we all have our different styles and drivers. I'm I'm, I'm very innovation driven, achievement driven. I'd actually just made full professor. I'd now been associate dean mm-hmm. for a decade. We had done some beautiful innovations at UC that I was so proud of with with fantastic teams. It was certainly not me. It was it was teams. And then I started waking up in the morning and kind of taking that energy pulse and realizing I didn't have it. Hmm. I was waking up wondering, what am I doing? And actually, I, I thought it was time to practice what I profess, and I was thinking, I need a co-op. And so I took a Fulbright, which is a scholarship opportunity for faculty. Okay. And I went to London. And I did that as a break, as an opportunity to re-energize and also to figure out is it about leadership for me? Should I go back to my research was going very well. It was I, I work with incredible colleagues around the world. And that was a chance for me to dive full on into the, the research. Mm-hmm. And it was a highly productive time. I loved London. I had already done um, a sabbatical earlier in my career. My father and mother were um, Mormon mission presidents in mm. London. Ser- that was also serendipitous. It wasn't on purpose that we happened to coincide in London at the same time. It's actually the largest Mormon mission in the world. And um, 
what I found there, though, was that it, it was almost back to my Indiana days as a student. Is as much as I was writing every day and researching, and I was sharing my research, and I was I had decided one of the things I was going to do was present at every leading business school that would have me. So mm. I spent a day at Cass, at Oxford, at Cambridge, at London Business School. I mean, at a host of places. And in those visits, I ended up talking to quite a few people about what they were doing in their business school, mm. which was not about my research. Mm. It was about so how you were doing, education was changing. Yeah, you were doing some of your own reconnaissance. Uh, mm-hmm. You were over there anyway on this Fulbright scholarship. So you thought, well, I'm going to check these schools out. I'm going to kind of make a presentation to them and kind of find find out what made them tick. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like Cass had a position that opened to head the business school, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened then? You interviewed for it? Mm-hmm. And, they uh, reached out to me. Okay. And when they reached out to me is, is when I thought, well, maybe I should apply somewhere else too. I hadn't even thought about mm-hmm. that. I mean, here I was a decade ago, I had said, of course I'm going to be Dean. Right. And now it's actually starting, I'm getting the inquiries. And so I did apply to a couple places too. And mm-hmm. I, I did happen to get both offers and then was debating them. Mm-hmm. What and was it, the other offer? Uh, where was that from? It was actually uh, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So a very different school. Yeah, different school. But I liked the idea of being on a beach. I mean, I really was, you can tell I was exploring. Yes. I was exploring. Yeah. And I just wanted to see what might work. Mm-hmm. But um, back to the the serendipity, and I think I, I shared this with you before, but just a funny story. You know, so I ended up at CAS, and early in that opportunity, I was having tea with one of the senior professors who was on the search committee, and I, I said to him, oh, I just, you know, I, I love that I'm here. Thank goodness I did my research day at CAS. Um, but if I back up, when I think about the decision to take a dean's job, the other piece I would add to that is while I was on this Fulbright and I was giving my research presentations, I had good days and bad days. Most of them were very good. In fact, the day at CAS was just absolutely tremendous. Mm. We So many colleagues that understood my work that, oh, I could see collaborations. We, And then some of them were not so good. So I spent a day at the London Business School, which is a tremendous school and so many wonderful colleagues there. But it was brutal. I have yeah. never had a presentation that rough. I was going to ask you about that. That was a little bit later in what I wanted to talk to you about. But because I want to come back to Cass. Okay. Uh, but let's talk about your presentation at the London Business School. Sure. And you said they were pretty tough on you. Oh, they were tough. Yeah. They were tough. Sometimes and you... how you handled yourself, because I think that's a good story. Well, they were tough. I mean, part of it is, you know, there's one thing to be presenting your research to a, a, a host of colleagues who have are already doing that kind of work, really into it. You want to, you know, push harder. This was a group of largely finance, economics, strategy professors, and they didn't buy anything I was saying. <laughs> <And> so they, <laughs> the, the questions were at a different kind of a level. So for about an hour and a half, I just took deep breaths and answered questions. And clearly, we were going to have to agree to disagree, but we had a, we, I thought we had a really good discussion, but it was rough. And in mm-hmm. fact, instead of taking the tube home to my flat, I walked the hour and a half licking my wounds, just thinking, I'm glad that's over. That was, that was rough. rough. But yeah. as I was later talking to this colleague at Cass, and I said, "I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I presented at Cass, and this opportunity to be, to be dean developed." And he looked at me and he said, "That's not why you're here." 
Yeah. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I was sitting in LBS when you presented. I said, what are you talking about, Charles? That was a really rough day. And he said, oh, no, no. I walked out of that meeting and I called the president of our university and I said, I think I might have met our next dean. Mm. Anyone who can handle herself <laughs> with that sort of crowd, very rough crowd, can be dean of our business school. Mm. So you never, you don't know. You don't know right? where the opportunities were come. No. And you don't know how you're coming across. He's in the audience. He sees mm -hmm. you for an hour and a half be pummeled by questions and you know yeah. challenging what you're saying and so forth you came away like wow that really rattled me and, and, and that didn't go well and yet he said no we've found our new dean of cas business school what tell me about that experience at london business school so you're making the you're making this presentation it's all men yeah, at least that's what that's how i envisioned the like crowd if there were men. women there if they were yeah. hiding in the back but do you think they were do you think your gender had anything to do with how they, why they were challenging you? I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, something that it is one of the biggest gender gaps that we have in the business school, and it's it's certainly mirrored in the business world, mm -hmm. is in fields like finance, finance and strategy right. mm -hmm. and even economics. And um, so I think coming in and being, I was coming in from a different lens, a different discipline. I'm management. I use a lot of psychology, sociology, philosophy in my mm -hmm. work. And I'm talking to people who are driven by numbers, ah. right? Le so yes, different gender, but also di very different mindset. Mindset, and more analytical versus... Much more, they were much more analytical. Yeah. I'm much more philosophical. Mm -hmm. And I w really was trying even in that debate discussion with the questions to say, but isn't it, you know... It, it, this is my belief. It's wonderful that we're coming at these challenging questions from different angles. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make our angles wrong, mm -hmm. but I study paradox, which is really about both and. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to make lemonade by saying, you know, think about the triangulation if we bring these different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they were um, tending to come more at the, but ours are right. Yes. And right. that's where, I'm not going to buy that. I'm yeah. not going to take that. Right. You but had I, the presence of mind. You had the backbone to stand up to them, right? You didn't, didn't melt. No. Oh, no. So that comes from your constitution and your confidence, I think. And so congratulations oh, getting through you. that. And then it led to the opportunity with Cass. Mm -hmm. um, when you came to Cass, uh, you interviewed and you talked to this Charles and other people there. They didn't tell you about an issue, um, <laughs> right. which was... Uh, was going on, and there was a grievance that had been filed uh, about a gender pay gap among the women. Mm -hmm. And uh, talk about what happened there, um, you know, and we'll talk about why they didn't tell you and, mm -hmm. you know, what happened. What, you know, here you are, dean, you know, woman, female dean of the business school. Right, the first. They did not tell you about this going on. Right, so this this was a shock, Susan. I mean, and, and it, it rattled me. I mean, mm -hmm. much more so than anything that happened at LBS. But so I had a another tea. I had a lot of tea in London, but <laughs> with a with one of the most senior women professors. And as she was sitting down, she said, "And this was three weeks in. This was an introductory. I, I want to get to know you a bit better. Tell me your perspective." And as she's sitting down, she said, "I think you should know I'm one of the grievance." And I said, "I don't know what you're talking about." She was. Uh, all the women professors are suing 
the university? <laughs> I said, okay, what? What? Mm. She said, we have the highest gender pay gap in the country at our business school. Mm. And I am just sitting there thinking, what are you talking about? Why would I not know this coming in? Right. Um, and, you know, and I will add that the reason it rattled me was that immediate shake to the confidence of why am I here? Yeah. I thought I was here because I was the best candidate. Am I here because they needed a woman from a, a presentation visibility standpoint? Mm -hmm. And I think that truly has made me very conscientious of, I mean, I'm a, a significant advocate champion for inclusive excellence, which is our term at UC, but mm. it, about diversity and inclusion. And numbers and presentation matter and you can never undermine the individual. They mm -hmm. have to know they're here because they're the best person. Mm -hmm. And they're also changing our makeup and changing our culture. But, boy, you start to think that it's just because of your gender mm -hmm. or your color or whatever the case might be. And you've, you've really undersold the individual in, mm -hmm. in pa ways that have undermined and demeaned them. Yeah. I mean, they, they came to these women came to you and said, hey, here's what's going on. They did. They hired you, didn't tell you about it, and then you're starting to think, well, maybe they just hired me because for, you know, you know, uh, showcasing, right. you know, hey, we've got a woman in here, look, we, we pay people, you know, what they uh, uh, deserve to be paid kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So what did you say to them? What did you decide to do? I decided to be the researcher I am and to dive deep into this and figure out what was going on. Yeah. So you said I was there for four years. For three and a half years, one of my biggest projects was the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. And for me, that meant um, a lot of rigor, diving into the internal issues, what's going on in my institution, but also benchmarking externally. Because I think we had to set up a, a whole host of structures from what does excellence look like? Because if we're going to say this is about a pay, if there is a pay gap or promotion gap, or any other sorts of gaps, we need to make sure that we're looking at apples to apples, right? What, mm -hmm. what does high performance mean at our institution? And mm -hmm. let's get serious about calling out both deficits and superiority, and then looking at the pay. Mm -hmm. And so there was an, that was the internal piece. On the external side, it was what's going on in the field of academia, because there are very big differences in pay by mm -hmm. discipline. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a supply and demand issue. You have areas back to the the gap we said in you know places like finance and strategy and economics, the, especially on the finance and strategy. Those are very high paying fields mm -hmm. for a number of reasons and male dominated. So some of that also will drive some of those pay differences. Um, but you said you thought maybe women possibly don't negotiate as as uh, tough. Uh, as men yes i i, think, I think that can be a that. real challenge yeah we see that we're like okay that's what you're offering me okay i'll take it men don't do that they uh -huh. say they well no here's push. what i want here's what i want and women can learn from that that's a broad brush uh -huh. stereotype but we see it, it is. right mm -hmm. so that's part of it yeah um so yeah it's interesting because now, you, I, you go back to the people who did not tell you this, did not give you the benefit of knowing that this right. was going on, and you said, hey, you guys didn't tell me this, and oh, by the way, I'm jumping in on it. 
mm-hmm. right? What did they say? Their first response was, oh, no, no, we've got it under control. Uh-huh. I said, well, you clearly don't <laughs> mm-hmm. if you've got a lawsuit going on. And and I'm now hearing from the women. Um, I, I think we need to do this in a different way. Right. Right? Yeah. I think they had come on it from almost a, a strictly analytic. I don't even know, to be honest, exactly what they had done. But given what I did over three and a half years, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a different level of rigor has to be applied mm-hmm. if you're going to be serious about this and make sure everybody knows mm-hmm. you're going to be serious. Mm-hmm. And we adjusted salaries on all sides. I yeah. mean, men as well as women. But then the point is, let's be proactive. Right. If we know what the what high performance looks like and the market looks like, we know where we have gaps and we know how to fix them. So pay them. Pay them. Right. Is that what mm-hmm. happened? Absolutely. There? Well, the other challenge is you also start to see these cases where you think you mm-hmm. see overpayment. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't... At CAS, they were actually, we were lowering some salaries, ah. which is a very big deal, lowering as you can imagine. Lowering salaries of some men? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. To, to bring it more in line? Yes. Because that must have gone over well. Oh, yeah. That was tough. <laughs> yeah. That was tough. Wow. I'll, I'll cite a, uh, a quote from an article in BizEd, a publication, which talks about the few number of women in leadership as deans and the pay gap. It says, this is the glass ceiling at work. Women are not only present in lower numbers than men, they are hitting barriers as they progress through the stages of leadership, and they're earning less at every turn. These discrepancies are not likely to change unless we identify and address some of the roadblocks women face in their careers. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So congratulations getting there. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, even though you know, they weren't uh, upfront and transparent with you on this. You dove in and you made made a change. So mm-hmm. you could have said, hey, I'm, I'm going back to the U.S. You guys, you know, that you should have told me. You oh, know? <laughs> I had that fleeting thought at one point, Susan. But I said, nope, I'm here yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Cool. You said something that I don't know that I realized about you. And I should have uh, because your I think your father was he um, – Headed the school BYU in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Are, did you grow up Mormon? I did. Okay. I did. All right. How do you think that religion influenced who you are today? Oh, I th- I think it, it it influenced me greatly. I mean, and I will say I'm I'm the rebel in the family. I'm the only non practicing Mormon in the family, but I also have great respect for their beliefs and values, and which tend to be very much around family, community, hard work, um, and just a, a respect for free agency, that it's, it's about empowering the individual. Mm-hmm. And, and so it certainly has influenced who I am. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Norm Miller, who was uh, the head of University of Cincinnati's real estate department for many years, well-known here in Cincinnati among especially the real estate community. Absolutely. He is now teaching and has been, I looked uh, on LinkedIn for 14 years. It's hard to believe it's That's been that amazing. long. He's, right. he's been gone. Uh, but Norn has been a longtime friend of mine and supporter. And he says about you, dealing with uncertainty and complexity has been one of Dean Lewis's themes. Tell me how you deal with uh, uncertainty and complexity. <laughs> Oh, I appreciate that, Norm. I think Norm was in that group that helped hire me for that original associate dean role. Um, I see uncertainty and complexity as opportunities. Mm. 
I mean, I, I one of the examples I would give that that I think Norm was at UC, I know he was when we were going through it, is many years ago, the governor of Ohio said that all universities would be on semesters so that students could flow between universities in Ohio. And we were on quarters at the time. This is when Nancy oh, Zimper was this. president. Do you remember yeah. this? Mm-hmm. But that is a big deal. That means every system, every course, every program, I mean, literally everything had to change. Yes. And enormous complexity at a big university, mm-hmm. right? Uh, with 13 colleges and how, however many thousands of students we had at the time. And I was head of the undergraduate program, and the dean at the time put me in charge of kind of the big semester conversion, but I just see opportunity in that. This is, this is a chance for us to step back and say, what do we really want to be doing here? Mm-hmm. We have to change everything anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's put some clear guardrails around what are our core principles? What matters most to us? It, it literally doesn't mean starting from scratch by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. because you're always building upon the shoulders of mm-hmm. what's come before. Right. And let's use that to reduce the complexity and the uncertainty, but also to innovate. Mm-hmm. And the changes we made in that semester conversion um, were tremendous. And mm-hmm. they enabled us to continue growing and elevating the quality. But it was a huge team effort. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Fantastic. Oh. I found an article, and this sort of leads into this paradox that you mentioned before. There was an article on LinkedIn that you commented on. Uh, the name of the article was Why the Paradox Mindset is the Key to Success. And your comment on LinkedIn was valued integration on a paradox mindset and both and thinking, connecting with related thought leaders across disciplines, helping each other thrive and lead through tensions. What do you mean by that the paradox, the both yeah. and? So really, this started with my dissertation, and I was studying advanced manufacturing technology. My dad is a professor of operations management, so I kind of grew up in mm-hmm. the manufacturing technology world. Is As I started to study change, in that case with manufacturing technologies, what I saw was just tensions, competing demands. You know, are we, are we trying to use technology to be more efficient? Are we trying to be more innovative? Well, it can't be both, but it is both. both. It's always Mm -hmm. both, right? Do you want to be acting globally for scale or thinking locally to respect individual differences? Yes, Mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. So I really started working on this, the the concept of paradox, which basically means interwoven contradictions. It is the yin-yang, that the light defines the dark, the dark defines the light. These are always in mutual interaction. And I can get really too philosophical on this side. But it is a change in mindset mm-hmm. when you move away from the either or, let's weigh the pros and cons, make a decision and move on to, wait a minute, you can make a decision today, but that same issue is going to come up again tomorrow because needing to be both innovative and efficient never goes away. And it changes the way we start to work through mm-hmm. issues, mm-hmm. whether it's a high-level strategy or a day-to-day, how do I w- manage my work and my life? Mm-hmm. We see them again and again. So I like to think about that in, in a variety of ways. And the article you're commenting on was by a colleague of mine, a co-author at INSEAD, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, I used to joke with my kids that I was famous to five people. And now I'm, I think, top 1% cited in the, in the field of management. But it's because 
we've got so much traction to change the way we research. Mm -hmm. Leaders, I mean, we have wonderful leaders that exemplify this. Paul Pullman is an alum of UC and has always been one of my favorite models of a paradoxical leader. When he was leading Unilever, and we, I, I was studying him and we were bringing students to visit, right? With the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, he said, we will double the profits of Unilever and half our economic, our environmental footprint. And people thought he was crazy. That doesn't work that way, Paul, right? If you grow money and you grow, period, you're actually going to grow your environmental footprint. And he said, mm-hmm. we touch 2 billion consumers a day. We can't let that relationship stand. And it meant that every time they were adding a new product, changing where they were, were say, moving into different parts of Africa, he'd say this at the same time, and how will we reduce water? How will we reduce our energy consumption? Mm-hmm. What will this look like for mm-hmm. our supply chain? So you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it changes your questions. It's not just about money or right. growth. It's also about mm-hmm. making sure we're supporting our communities, yeah. improving it's, the environment. Business, though, in my long 41 years of experience, doesn't think that way often. Often. We think in a linear way. Mm-hmm. We often think in a black or white way. It's hard. I think it's hard for people to think that way. It is. You know, to think that we have competing forces here and it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be this. It can be both and we can manage through that, right? Yeah. But that either or thinking gets us into all sorts of trouble. Oh, I know it. So, so a lot of my research ended up also being on vicious cycles of either or thinking. Mm. That by pulling too far and singularly to one side, missing the other, mm-hmm. we go down a rabbit hole that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous to us as individuals, as teams, as organizations, mm-hmm. um, as a country. As a co- oh, as a country, absolutely. <laughs> it's, we're, we're talking about it. We need it's, to think a little bit more, be both. more open-minded about yes. things going on. <laughs> and it doesn't mean not having conflict. It means about having fruitful, creative fruitful. tensions, yes. right? We yes. need the tensions. Yes, we need you, it. You need people that really have some depth on both sides of the mm-hmm. equation, can bring it to the table. That's where we're going to get much more creative solutions, especially to the wicked problems. Yeah. And it's those wicked problems that keep us up at night. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to watch some of the the insurrection on the Capitol and, and what's going on. I mm-hmm. felt like I was looking at a third world country there. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it's very we polarized. We really need to, you know, and I, I try to stay open-minded and listen to all sides. Me too. You know, and to, and hear what the other side has to say. And I say sides because that's the way it feels. Right. You know, and there is moderate thinking out there, you know, in some cases. And so I try to stay open-minded, but I'm a little nervous about where we're going here. I'm a little anxious about mm-hmm. what this I'm is going to look like because we're at this time when Joe Biden was just inaugurated this week and Kamala Harris, first woman, first uh, person mm-hmm. of color, woman of color uh, in that office. So we're going to see a lot of change. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to come out of this. Uh, let's talk about confidence. You talk mm-hmm. about uh, women, um, young women, and how do you get confidence? How do you keep it? When do you sort of fake it till you make <laughs> it? Um, talk about confidence. Boy, if there was anything I could literally gift to, to a student, anyone, 
for that matter, a student, my one of my children, it doesn't matter. It would be confidence because with confidence, you can do so much because you can take the risks, you can explore, you can experiment. And I believe that's so important to how we learn. Um, to your point about faking it till you make it, I mean, that is actually something I talk to talk to people about is, and in part because I had that really good advice at a young age from my father as I was, you know, a, a new faculty and new associate dean just struggling. He said, oh, no, no, I do it all the time. <laughs> because <laughs> if you don't put yourself out there, which is the faking it, right. you're, you're not going to know what works and doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I also think, I mean, I, I think about maybe my, in particular, my challenge in, in London. I mean, Six months after getting to CAS, we have Brexit happen. I have students from over 141 countries. It looks like the UK is about to close its borders. I mean, mm. it, and I've got this gender pay gap. I mean, there was so much on my plate. Yeah. And I, as I said, I'm very innovation and achievement driven. And mm-hmm. I was failing. I mean, I just, mm. it was painful to me. And then I realized but that failure is, isn't an end, right? It's just part of the journey and how do we build confidence in ourselves and help others as well work through the failure mm-hmm. because it's only working through those challenges that we're going to see what we're really made of learn to play to our greatest strengths and then find others to help us in our areas mm-hmm. of weakness yeah but that's a learning process those are those are tough times in our careers and i've had those very. too where you're at that point where this is happening that's happening this is happening and i don't know kind of where to go from here the faking it until you make it always kind of strikes me as, you know, being phony. Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about, Mm-mm. is it? It's no. about despite what's going on, you come in as a leader and you show that even though you have some doubts and the insecurities and anxieties, that you come in and bring your best self and show them that you are confident that this is all going to work out. That's the faking it till you make it. Yeah, it is. I mean, my- one of my favorite researchers actually is Brene Brown these days. Yes. And and Brene's work is highly paradoxical, right? Because she's basically saying that vulnerability and courage are two sides of the same coin. Yes. And that the only way to build courage is to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And I look at those two sides of the yin-yang and I see confidence overarching it. Mm-hmm. Because without the confidence, you won't put yourself out there. Right. And Likewise, if you, if you get too courageous, you start to forget to be humble yes, and that you definitely don't know everything. And you, and we that, need to subordinate our ego sometimes. You need sometimes. to subordinate that. <laughs> uh, you do. And they go together. Um, well, it sounds like you have children and you have grandchildren. How many children do you have? Three. Fantastic. How old are they? Uh, they are 29, 27, 25. Okay. And what are they doing today? Uh, They're all over. I've got um, one that's about to come back here with the grandchild. He's at okay. Notre Dame's MBA. I've got one in Boston, also okay. in an MBA at Boston College. And my daughter is in Milwaukee, also doing an MBA at Wisconsin and um, in marketing. So they're they're all wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I wouldn't have missed having kids or grandkids Not for, for the world. So uh, let's wrap up with this. Um, you have a quote uh, on Twitter that you put on around Christmas time, and you say, Merry Christmas, wishing we all find, create, and thrive in the joy in our lives. And you quote Joseph Campbell, we cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. I just see you as a very positive person. I have this the third time we've met. I'm glad that Kay Geiger at PNC Bank, oh, President of PNC Bank, she put us in touch. But talk about that quote. 
Oh, I, I am an optimist. I'm an mm-hmm. eternal optimist. I mm-hmm. try not to be a Pollyanna in mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But as hard as our, our lives can get in various ways, boy, those moments of joy, that's where we get our energy. We remember why we're doing what we're mm-hmm. doing, why the hard work matters. So I, I shared that quote because uh, at times I can forget. And then I look around and I think, oh, I'm so blessed. Yeah. And I, the moments of joy, like with the grandchild. Yes. Oh, I just cling <laughs> to that. It is, and then I, you it's know, unreal. <laughs> back to Brene, you know, it helps me put the armor on when I need it to walk yeah. into the places that need work. Mm-hmm. And it is about work and it's about making this world a better place. And it's a never ending journey. Yes, right? indeed it is. And nature. I'm still working at it every oh, day. Me too. And there's a lot to be grateful for. I agree. Uh, a lot, lot of blessings and gratitudes there. Marian, thanks for joining me today. I really, oh, really loved season. getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.